Quote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The sentence, of course, comes from the United States Declaration of Independence. Our society is largely built on the concept of personal rights, certain unalienable rights bestowed upon us by our Creator, and rightfully so. This has been an amazingly successful experiment in self-rule, for which we must all be very thankful. But as we saw last week in 1 Corinthians chapters 8-10, through 10, when it comes to our day-to-day decisions rather than our political philosophies, the Christian is called to be far less concerned with our personal rights and far more concerned with our responsibilities toward others. We are explicitly called to set aside our rights in in seeking the good of our neighbors. Well, today, we're we're going to to further consider our responsibilities toward others. Specifically, our responsibilities toward the fellow members of our local church. Brothers and sisters in Christ with whom we have entered into the committed partnership that God has called a church. Consider this question. What is the first recorded question that any human being asked God? Can you think of the first question asked of God in the scriptures? It comes in Genesis chapter 4, verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, who had just murdered his brother Abel, Where is Abel your brother? And Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 18, verse 12. You can find it on page 20 in the second half of the Pew Bible. You want to keep the the text of Matthew 18 open before you throughout the duration of the sermon, as we'll actually be working through the entire chapter. But I'm going to begin by reading the three verses near the middle of the chapter. Matthew chapter 18, verse 12. Reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord to you. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to us. By the Holy Spirit, apply your word to our hearts, that we may increasingly rejoice in the things that cause you to rejoice, the rescuing of wandering sheep. Father, bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We'll jump back now to the start of the chapter, Matthew 18, verse 1. It begins with these words. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, what exactly these disciples have in mind with this question is not explained to us. In the the previous chapter, Jesus took three of them up on a mountain with him, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. There appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. So there's that major event that only three of them were invited to. So, So that could have sparked a debate about which one of them would have the the biggest role in the kingdom that Christ was about to establish. 
But whatever spurred the question, Jesus makes it clear that they are thinking wrongly about what it means to be great in his kingdom. Verse 2, In calling to him a child, he put the child in the midst of the disciples and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice the language of correction. Unless you turn. Turn from your preoccupation with status and roles and titles and hierarchies. Unless you turn from that way of thinking, not only will you not be counted as great in the kingdom, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So we're we're clearly talking about an extremely serious matter, one of eternal significance. So we had better all understand what Jesus is teaching here. What does it mean to become like children? Well, he elaborates, verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus likens the humility to trust and follow him with the humility of children. Now, obviously, we're not talking about any concept of innocence or, or sinlessness. Anyone who's been around young children is acutely aware of their rebelliousness. My three-year-old is not always eager to obey and to please me, to say the least. And there are occasions when he stubbornly wants to, to complete tasks on his own without my help. However, the majority of the time, he doesn't hesitate to openly and happily acknowledge his dependence on me, saying, Daddy, come with me. Daddy, help me. Daddy, carry me. He's certainly unconcerned with what others think about his dependence and his intimacy with his father. And he has no interest in building a great name for himself in the eyes of others. To trust and follow Jesus is to accept and to openly declare your trust and dependence upon him. Verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Having just likened true disciples to children, it's most natural to take this verse not merely as referring to to receiving children in his name, but rather to receiving any and all true disciples in his name. It's about welcoming others into the new covenant community, receiving as a brother or sister those who profess faith in Christ and are committed to following him, even if they have nothing more to offer you than a child can. God's kingdom on earth is not about assembling the most gifted and influential people we can into our our little club. It's not a political movement or a business. It's a community of sinners who have been saved by grace, who are committed to bearing one another's burdens as we help each other to follow Jesus and lead others to do likewise. To receive a blood-bought believer is to receive Jesus, he says. And thus to reject a blood-bought believer is to reject Jesus. It's with this focus on the new covenant community and our responsibilities toward one another that, that Jesus begins to elaborate on the dangers of sin within that community. Verse 6, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. That is, there's nothing, there's no avoiding the presence and dangers of temptation. 
God has a purpose in allowing temptations, but he says, woe to the one by whom the temptations come. It's necessary that they come, but woe to the one by whom they come. Well, this this parallels what we read last week. 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 about not allowing our rights to become a stumbling block for fellow believers, leading them astray. We must not only think in terms of what is morally permissible for us, but also of what is spiritually beneficial to those around us. Our responsibilities are more important than our rights. It's with this in mind that that Jesus then begins to talk about the necessity of, of acknowledging our own temptation to sin, the necessity of of waging war against that sin. Verse 8. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or, or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Now, obviously, the the severing of hands and feet and eyes is not to be taken overly literalistically. We understand hyperbolic metaphor when we see it. Hands and feet don't tempt us to sin. Sin is a matter of the heart. Ah, but there are habits and environments that unduly tempt us to sin. People who are trying to overcome addictions, uh, particularly drug and alcohol-related addictions, will often tell you that what they need more than anything is to move away from their current city, to get away from all their friends, all their acquaintances, and everything else that contributes to their current patterns of life. Now, sadly, most don't follow through with those breaks, and thus they don't break their addictions. Think of the patterns of life as as chains cuffed to one of your wrists. The only way to be set free is to cut off your hand. Few are willing to, to fully embrace this crippling of their life as they know it ought to be in order to be set free. But when viewed rightly, a sacrifice that leads to freedom can hardly be described as a sacrifice at all. What parts of your life do you need to cut off for the sake of pursuing purity and being set free? John Owen famously wrote, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. It's one or the other. And it takes humility to confess and to wage war against our own sin. The next section, remaining on the topic of sin and repentance, Jesus then directs their attention back to the child that he has called over to them. Again, the child represents every faithful follower of Christ. Read this in verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. In Hebrews chapter 1, we hear the angels described as ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. They're ministering spirits sent out to serve us. And in 1 Corinthians 6, we're told that that those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ will one day judge the angels, presumably for, for how well they have carried out their duties. That's interesting as 
the mysterious presence of angels is in our lives, there's really nothing more we can say than what's been said. It goes beyond the text to say that each and every one of us has a guardian angel. Maybe, but don't miss the point that Jesus is making here by bringing up angels. The point is that God, as the great shepherd of his sheep, intensely cares for each and every one of his sheep. And thus, none should be neglected or rejected by the other sheep. For even the angels are serving our fellow believers. So too should we. Verse 12. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Jesus uses this same imagery in Luke chapter 15 to speak of pursuing unbelieving sinners. But here, he's using it to speak of pursuing sinning believers. Same imagery, unbelieving sinners in Luke 15 sinning believers in Matthew 18. And notice the means. Notice the means that the great shepherd uses to to bring back the wanderers. It's the practice that has become to be known as church discipline. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Surely that that last verse is one of the verses of the Bible that is most frequently taken out of context. He's saying that when the process of church discipline is, is prayerfully followed as he has directed, well then, his spiritual presence will be with that church. And he will see to it that his purposes are accomplished in their lives. This is the means by which God brings back wandering sheep. It's through the loving, corrective care of other sheep. Notice that this is not a responsibility that is merely reserved for for pastors, which we often call elders. No, this instruction is addressed to all disciples in regard to the members of their particular church. You see the same thing in the letter of James to various churches throughout the world. The end of James, in James chapter 5, having just referenced the elders of the churches that he's writing to five verses earlier, in James 5.19, James concludes his letter. He concludes his first letter with these words. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. Likewise, the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6 does not address only pastors, elders, but rather all members of the family of faith, saying, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, 
You who are spiritual, that is, walking by the Spirit and not by the flesh, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is what it means to bear one another's burdens. This is what it means to fulfill the law of Christ, to love your neighbor as yourself. It means bringing back wanderers. This responsibility is laid on every member of every church. In fact, this is one of the, the primary reasons to join a church. Hebrews chapter 3 always comes to mind for me in this regard. Hebrews 3, the author has just finished quoting from Psalm 95, where God bemoans the fact that his people go astray, that is, they wander in their hearts. The author to the Hebrews writes this in Hebrews 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. How do we take care not to fall away? Verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The sin within us all is deceitful, threatening to lead us astray. And so what do we do? What do we do while recognizing the deceitfulness of sin? We partner together with other brothers and sisters in Christ who will commit to exhort us daily. We join churches because we recognize our need for others, our need for others to lovingly care for us, gently correcting us when we sin. When we join a church, we're saying, I need other people to help me kill the sin that is threatening to kill me. But obviously, in order for this to work, we must then commit to lovingly care for others by gently correcting them when they go astray, when they sin. A foundational commitment of every healthy church is the commitment to pursue purity through the means of grace that God has instituted. And one of those means of grace, a key means of grace in this regard, is the practice of church discipline. The Greek word for church, ekklesia, which means local assembly, it only appears two times in the four Gospels. In Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus declares, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And the second time, the only other time it's used in the four Gospels is here in Matthew 18 where Jesus establishes the third and fourth stage of church discipline, commanding us to tell it to the church. And if he, the the church member who is refusing to repent of his sins by confessing it and asking for forgiveness from offended parties, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile, that is, as, as one who is outside of the covenant community, separated from God, let him be to you as a tax collector, that is, as an enemy of God and of his people, having forsaken them and partnered with their oppressors as a tax collector. Now, notice, at no step in the process of discipline that Jesus lays out here, or anywhere else that's alluded to in the New Testament, at no no point in that process are we being asked to, to try and discern whether this individual, under consideration, is genuinely trusting in Christ alone for their eternal salvation. We're not trying to read their heart and their mind. That's a common misconception about what is being declared here in the fourth stage of discipline. This fourth stage, which is often referred to as excommunication. It's not that the church determines the person is no longer a believer. 
That's not for us to decide. It's that Jesus has commanded us to treat them as though they were an unbeliever, as though they were a Gentile and a tax collector. And how do we treat unbelievers? We treat them as those in desperate need of Christ. And just as we're careful not to give anyone who has never trusted in Christ any false assurance that they will be saved in the last day, so it is with anyone who has reached the fourth stage of discipline. We cease to address them as brother or sister. We cease to do anything to make them feel at ease in their rebellion, giving them false assurance. The longest passage on this topic in the New Testament is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The entire chapter deals with this where Paul is commanding that church in Corinth to move forward with the fourth stage of discipline in a very specific case involving a member who has committed sexual immorality. Paul concludes his remarks with these words in 1 Corinthians 5.9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, since then you would need to go out of the world. In other words, he's not commanding the complete avoidance of all unbelievers. That's the whole reason God has left us here in the world, is to, to reach others with the gospel, not to avoid them. No, he's commanding the, that wayward, professing believers be treated in a certain way. As he continues, verse 11, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. As for those inside, purge the evil person from among you. Quoting from Deuteronomy 13. Other examples of this practice of discipline include those who stir up division and create factions within the church. We see that in Titus chapter 3, verse 10. Romans chapter 16, verse 17. Factions, divisions. In, in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, the practice of discipline is applied to members who are walking in idleness and refusing to work for their food. In several instances, the discipline is focused on false teaching. Galatians 1 is the prime text for that. Galatians 1, verse 6. 1 Timothy chapter 1, 2 John, verse 10. 2 Thessalonians 3, 14. They're all about discipline for false teaching. That last passage, 2 Thessalonians 3.14, it helps us to see that, that even the fourth stage of discipline, excommunications, not intended to punish the unrepentant person, but to correct them. It says this, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them, that they may be ashamed, meaning that they would be led to repent. Discipline is not designed to be punitive, but curative. It's not about seeking retribution, but restoration. In that sense, it's no different from a parent disciplining their child. It's designed for their good, not their harm. Proverbs 13.24, the famous text on this, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. So that's the first aim of discipline, to bring back the wanderer, seeking their good. The second aim is to warn and spur on the rest of the covenant community, the rest of the church. We see this in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20, where the process of church discipline is being applied to wayward pastors in particular. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20. 
As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. It's the second aim, to warn and to spurn on the rest of the church. And finally, the third aim of church discipline is to guard the church's witness to the onlooking world so that the world might see this family of faith as a light shining in the darkness. So it's for the good of the wanderer, it's for the good of the church, and it's for the good of the onlooking world. They might see something different in us and ask us for the reason of the hope that is in us. Of course, every unrepentant sinner's famous verse will be quoted in this regard. Judge not, that you be not judged. Matthew 7, verse 1, ripped from its context. For Jesus continues in the next verse, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? The issue there, of course, is hypocritically seeking to correct others while blatantly walking in unrepentance yourself. As he says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So yes, labor to take the log out of your own eye, and then, having done so, don't neglect to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is God's design for bringing back wandering, wayward Christians. The practice of church discipline is the great shepherd's crook. I often wonder if if our aversion in our day to church discipline is a result of, of not laboring to take logs out of our own eyes. That is, if it's the result of not taking personal, private discipline seriously. Notice again in Matthew 18, what immediately precedes verses 10 through 20 on church discipline is verses 5 through 9 on waging war against sin in your own life. We are to do both. They go hand in hand. The foundational commitment of every healthy church is the commitment to pursue purity through every means of grace that God has instituted. The scene in Matthew 18 then then takes a turn to address the the often equally challenging task of actually forgiving church members when the Lord blesses the exercise of discipline and they actually repent. Verse 21, Then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? It appears that a custom had developed in first century Judaism where it was only required to forgive someone three times. No further after that point. So so Peter may well have expected to be commended for more than doubling that to get to the number seven. Well, Jesus has a different number in mind. Verse 22, Jesus said to Peter, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, or, or possibly it should be 70 times seven times. Either way, it's clearly not intended to be taken as a, a number that you actually keep track of, right? It's just a way of saying an unlimited number of times. And then in verses 23 through 35, Jesus tells the parable of the unforgiving servant. I don't have time left this morning to, to work through it, so I hope uh, to work through it this evening in uh, 4.30 service. In short, the parable of the unforgiving servant, a servant is forgiven, and then 
That is, he's, he's released from an, an impossibly large debt that he owed to the king. But then the servant turns around, having been forgiven himself, and refuses to forgive a relatively small debt that a fellow servant owed him. And the king is none too pleased when he finds out. This parable is teaching us that our debt against God is greater than any debt we are being commanded for, to forgive others. And when we understand the magnitude of God's mercy toward us, mercy will beget mercy. And we will be moved to show that same mercy to others. In short, forgiven sinners forgive sinners. So when we find it impossible to, to forgive others from the heart, as we're commanded to in Matthew 18, he's saying that we need only to meditate upon the magnitude of our debt of sin and upon the great price of our redemption, the suffering and death of God the Son in our place, so that all who trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins can receive the promise of eternal life and be empowered to help lead others to salvation, to help bring back those who wander and to forgive those who sin against us. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are. Insofar as you are being used by the great shepherd to help keep one another on the path of life. Let us pray. Father, we, we thank you that you rescue undeserving sinners like us. Help us not to despise your design for our life together as a church. Help us to delight in the way that you use us to build one another up and to, to better shine the light of the gospel in the darkness of the world around us. Bless the preaching of your word, Father. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.